Good morning. My name is Andrew Sharp. I'm an elder here at the barn. It's my privilege to be your substitute preacher this morning. We are continuing our series on Hebrews, which Matt accurately described as a sermonic letter. In fact, maybe even an aggressively sermonic letter. And specifically today, we're looking at Hebrews 7 to 8. And in studying that text, it struck me almost less as a sermon and more as a legal argument. And I'll explain what I mean shortly. It bears repeating that the writer of Hebrews was writing to Jewish Christians to encourage them in their faith, but also to dispel some misgivings they had about the gospel. Specifically, misgivings about embracing Jesus as high priest. Now, to us today, to believing Christians, that probably doesn't sound like the most controversial um, aspect of Christianity. And if, unless you were from a Jewish tradition, you probably didn't really struggle when you came to faith with the concept of Jesus as high priest. But the people the writer of Hebrews was writing to did. He's trying to convince a people that a religious system of sacrifices, rituals, rules, and laws had now been replaced by a better way. The Jews, of course, were steeped in the traditions of Moses and Abraham and the law. And there was understandably reluctance to turn away from that heritage. And I would expect the early Jewish Christians to be almost trying to fashion a hybrid faith where they could retain their Jewishness while still accepting Jesus as Messiah. So what do I mean? In chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews takes on the objection to Jesus as high priest. The Jews understood priests to come from the Levitical line of priests, from the Levites. Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah, which did not produce priests. Judah produced some heavy hitters of the Bible, King David for one, but it was not a priestly line. So how could Jesus be the high priest if he didn't come from that line of high priests? Another stumbling block was the idea that Jesus was both king and priest. In the Jewish tradition, kings were not priests and priests were not kings. They were separate offices. So the writer of Hebrews sets out to allay these objections. And his point of departure is an Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. Now, honestly, I had never heard of Melchizedek before this sermon series. Uh, in the text that Matt has read in previous weeks, uh, he's mentioned one or two times. But I've never, like growing up, heard a Bible story about Melchizedek. 
I've never seen any movies about him, but he is central to the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making that Jesus can be our high priest and king. I did find, and you can see it on your screen, a painting of Abraham meeting Melchizedek. So, not that obscure, but not the most prominent Old Testament figure. This is how chapter seven begins. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's the word of the Lord. So Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14, and he meets Abraham after a battle, and he blesses him, and Abraham then gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is described as the priest of the Most High God. His name literally translates to King of Righteousness. He was also the King of Salem, which would later be Jerusalem. Salem means peace, so Melchizedek was also literally the King of Peace. Now what was that stuff about Melchizedek being without father or mother or genealogy? Well, the writer here is referring to how nothing is written in Genesis about Melchizedek's family or lineage. There's nothing there. And that's fairly surprising because in Genesis, there are quite a few genealogies presented, but not for Melchizedek. So what does this have to do with Jesus being our high priest? The writer is telling his audience that one doesn't necessarily have to be from the Levitical line of priests to be a high priest, or even have any particular genealogy. He is citing precedent. Some scholars have speculated whether the writer of Hebrews meant to imply that Melchizedek was some sort of supernatural figure. Um, I saw a reference, I didn't read it, but some reference to an ancient text that said Melchizedek was, like Jesus, born of a virgin and emerged from the womb fully formed and dressed. Now, it's not surprising maybe that that didn't make it into the, the biblical canon, but I mean, can you imagine if they had ultrasound back then? That would have been a very awkward conversation. You know, um, Mrs. Melchizedek, uh, your, your, 
your unborn child is healthy, and, but I don't know how to tell you this, but I think he's wearing a robe and sandals, and I think he has a beard. That, that, would, be, that would be weird. The writer goes on to argue that not only can Jewish Christians accept Jesus as high priest, but Jesus' priesthood is superior. Why is it superior? It has no end. Priests aged and died and gave way to other priests, and Jesus didn't. Further, the Levitical priesthood didn't create perfection. Indeed, if the, the writer argues that if the Levitical line was fully sufficient for all spiritual purposes, you would never have needed a high priest named Melchizedek. During Jesus' incarnation, the high priests plotted to kill him. Yet by defeating death, Jesus showed that his priesthood was superior. And unlike earthly priests, Jesus did not need to make regular sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus himself was the sacrifice. He was sacrificed once and for all time. All previous priests were fallible human beings, but Jesus led the perfect life that we couldn't. Chapter 8 continues the case for Christ as priest, as, as priest and king and opens the way I wish so many Bible passages would open. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Thank you, writer of Hebrews. That is, just lay it out there. So the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So having established his argument for Jesus as high priest and king, the writer turns his or her attention to the superiority of the new covenant that Jesus ushered in. Here again, the writer lays out a very reasoned argument to prove the point. He makes critical comparisons between the old covenant and the new covenant. A couple of the differences, and there are lots of them. The goal of the old covenant was to identify sin, to condemn it, and set a fence around it so people would avoid it. The goal of the new covenant is to declare the love, grace, and mercy of God and give repentance, remission of sin, and eternal life. The old covenant was for the descendants of Abraham. The new covenant is available to anyone who professes faith in Jesus. The old co covenant was a system of laws that was impossible to keep. 
no matter how perfect you tried to be. No one could live a sinless life and with sin necessarily comes estrangement from God. The writer of Hebrews is telling his readers and us that while there have been priests through the centuries, in Jesus we have the superior one. And while God made a covenant with Abraham, which was necessary for people to live and not hurt each other, the covenant ushered in by Jesus is the superior one. So where do we, Christ followers, struggle? What are our stumbling blocks that we kind of get hung up on? I think there, there are many that we could have. A few stand out. I think for believers in Jesus, for those who want to follow him earnestly, it can be hard to accept that as messed up as we might be, we recognize ourselves to be, we are forgiven, completely forgiven. For some of us, it can just be super hard to wrap our minds around that. We continue to make mistakes. We continue to hurt other people and ourselves. We know we drift from God. How can God be okay with that, we wonder? And yet, to question the sufficiency of our forgiveness is pretty much the same thing as saying that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough. When Jesus said, it is finished, we wonder if it is really finished for us. God's love is more than we can fathom. And if forgiveness feels elusive, if we dwell in our own failures, we have to return to Jesus and remember what he did on our behalf. A second uh, pretty significant stumbling block that a lot of non-believers have, and, and some Christians have, is that faith in Jesus can't really be the only way to God, right? I mean, in a culture where we're flooded by many purported truths that are conflicting a lot of the time, it sounds harsh. What about decent, compassionate, loving people who don't happen to believe in Jesus. Are they just going to burn in hell? What kind of God would condemn people for that reason? It's not a frivolous question. It's an important question. But again, we return to Jesus' own words when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's either a truth or the lie of an arrogant fraud. You can't have it both ways. 
and we look back to what else Jesus said. He said he would defeat death. And indeed, he rose from the grave. The resurrected Jesus was witnessed by many people. His followers, who had been devastated by his death, were so energized by their encounter with the risen Jesus that they went on to build the early church at great peril to their own lives. There's a, there's a jury instruction. Um, my, in my previous life, I was an attorney. Um, and there's a jury instruction that's given, that was given by judges to juries in, I think, every single case I tried. It goes something like this. If you, the jury, find that a witness has testified falsely about something, you're entitled to dis- disbelieve them on other testimony. I think that's a pretty useful rule. And I think the converse should also be true here. If you have a close friend who has always had your best interests at heart and has never, ever lied to you, or misled you about anything, but everything they said turned out to be true. If that person said something that was very challenging, you shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand because they have established their credibility. Jesus has never been proven wrong. His testimony is impeccable. Probably my own, I I surely have several stumbling blocks that that I wrestle with. Um, One is probably summed up like this, and it kind of goes back to the earlier point, that the good news seems almost too good to be true. And then I have to think back on what Jesus accomplished and what it meant and what it produced. What do we make of Jesus telling us that he was the only way to God? Well, for that we're left to trust that our God is good, that he's just. His love and his grace have no limits. I've I've come to the realization that that I don't have to know exactly how things will work out like at the heavenly level. I don't know how it gets worked out for non-believers. And I don't have to know that. Because we've all been non-believers for one thing but I have to rest in the knowledge that God loved me so much that he sacrificed his son for me. 
and I can trust that loving God with all these issues that are way above my pay grade. So what are your stumbling blocks to a deeper faith? I can tell you one more of mine that's, it may sound really silly, but I struggle with the fact that I don't know what Jesus looked like. I think part of the point is that we don't know, but there's, on some level, I would like to be able to visualize confidently that what Jesus looked like. And all through history, we have so many representations of Jesus that most of the time when an image pops into our heads, it's some bearded, blue-eyed, European-looking man. Of course, there's no scripture to support that. But it would help me somehow to know what he looked like. So that's, that's, that may seem kind of ridiculous, but I realized during the course of praying about this sermon and my own stumbling blocks that somehow that's one of them. And what are yours? Perhaps this week, you give that some thought. Maybe during your prayer time, you ask God to reveal those areas where you hold yourself back, where you have doubts. Is there a question that you haven't wrestled with? Because it's important to wrestle with these questions. The writer of Hebrews did not avoid that by any means. He took, it, took them on. I urge you not to avoid those questions. It's important for you. And they will move you closer to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are all so different in the ways we process your incredible work on the cross. To some, it may feel like faith comes easily. And for some, we have to work through things. Help reveal to us where we need to do that work. Reveal to us your truths. And give us peace in our hearts as we consider them, pray about them, and try to live based on those truths. Deep in our faith, Father, all of us, in Jesus' name, amen.